Imagine being born with an extraordinary mind, destined for greatness, only to use that power to manipulate, control, and destroy the lives of countless innocent people. In today's chilling story, we're going to dive into the twisted world of Keith Raniere, the man who started as a child prodigy and ended up as the sinister mastermind behind Nexium, a notorious sex cult. Today we'll uncover the dark secrets, illicit affairs, and tragic consequences surrounding this self-proclaimed guru who believed his intelligence and charm could bend the world to his will. Don't miss a single shocking detail, and join us as we unravel the disturbing rise and fall of the man once hailed as the smartest man in the world. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one I've been looking forward to, because I was following this in the news, because uh, there was a, I was a huge fan of the TV show Smallville back in the day, you know, like Superman, the early years, young Clark Kent running around doing his thing. That was probably like one of my favorite shows of my teenage years. I feel like, what were the other ones? There was The OC was big, that was a big show. What else was there? House, that was a bit later, I think. But like all of these shows remind me of my childhood. And anyway, one of the people in this cult was uh, one of the stars of that TV show, which is weird, isn't it? Um, and also then there was another, uh, I saw one of the dudes who was in this cult or like part of this cult somehow. There's the, this podcast, the H3 podcast, and they like baited this dude so hard. It was hilarious. Like he's calling in and he's done no research. He's done no research about this podcast. They're just like, he's just like, I want to come on your podcast and talk about how great Keith Raniere is and how he's like, I think he was like how I cured my Tourette's and shit like that. It's like, bro, what are you talking about? And I think it just got his wires crossed about the show because he's like, yeah, you guys were like defending Andrew Tate and stuff. You got like that different narrative. And they're like, don't know what you've heard about our show. But that's not what happens here. And it's just, he walks into this trap and it's just brutal, dude. Like, it was just, it was like so uncomfortable to listen to, but also so funny at the same time. It's worth checking out. Anyway, let's jump in. Thank you, Matthew. The the format of this show is, I've got a giant script here about Mr. Mr. Now, he's like fully in prison, I think for like a hundred years or something. So no allegedly today. Um, thank you, Matthew, for writing this script. I've never read it. Let's just jump in. But, but I, like I said, I'm familiar with this case. When visualizing a cult leader, most people's minds immediately conjure up a particular type of person. Tall, handsome, manly, charismatic, young Jim Jones or Charles Mason. However, the focus of our story today was none of those things. Keith Raniere was a short, funny-looking man with unkempt hair who reeked of B.O. Oh, you don't see that? I didn't think he was that bad-looking. <laughs> Hot or not, Keith Raniere. Um, but yeah, B.O., you can't see that through the screen. He was unassuming, soft-spoken, and obsessed with science fiction. He spoke slowly, somewhat condescendingly, and had little regard for anyone but himself. Yet despite all of this, Keith Raniere was also a polyamorous man who spent his entire life seducing countless women and maintaining numerous relationships simultaneously. He certainly wasn't charismatic in the traditional sense, most people refer to him as shy and a bit awkward, but he did have some indescribable quality that drew people to him. It was an allure that most of his former girlfriends, associates, and victims have never been able to properly verbalize. He presented himself as harmless, yet nothing could have been further from the truth. As his desires for money, women, and power grew, Keith founded one of the most infamous sex cults in recent history. It was a cult that would see him and his associates charged with everything from conspiracy to commit fraud to sex trafficking. <laughs> Those are like two. I guess they could be involved because sex trafficking does include money, so they could probably like throw some sort of fraud charge in there. 
or something, but you like you don't think of those two crimes being related very often. So what do you do? A sex traffic and uh, commit fraud. <laughs> this is a story of Keith Raniere and the sex cult known as Nexium. Keith Raniere, child prodigy. Keith Raniere was born, and I know I'm going to pronounce this guy's name wrong at some point, because it's like, is that really how you say it? Like, I looked it up, I, I watched that, um, The Vow, and I was like, okay, Raniere, Raniere, Rainier, no, Simon, no, Raniere. And the Nexium one is, it's also like N-X-I-V-M. Like, what's that brand? There's some big fashion brands that have a V in their name. Oh God, what's it called? They own a big block of apartments in London as well that just are empty. They're like, I think they're owned by Russians or something. What the f*** is that called? It's not, oh, God damn it, it's right there on the tip of my tongue. Bulvari. Bulvari? 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 Who cares? Keith Raniere was born in Brooklyn, New York on August the 26th, 1960, and was the son of an advertising agent, James Raniere, who worked during the height of New York City's advertising boom. By those that knew his father, James was described as a man who stepped right out of the TV show Mad Men, which, if you've seen it, is not a compliment. Ah, I mean, looking like you stepped out of the show Mad Men, they were very stylish. I mean, <laughs> they had the opinions of men in the 1960s, so it doesn't exactly fit well with our modern sensibilities. But I don't know. They dressed well. They looked good. I don't think they'd really look that good because they drank and smoked a lot. His mother, Vera Oshopek, was a gentler soul and a ballroom dance instructor who was forced into early retirement after de developing a serious heart condition early in life. After the birth of their son, J James and Vera fought often. They fought over everything from money issues to James's infidelity. However, regardless of the real reason, young Keith was always left feeling like he was the main source of the family's problems. In 1966, when Keith was six years old, Vera's already fragile health began to worsen, and the Rainier family was forced to move to Suffern, New York, one of New York City's main suburbs. While living there, James noticed that there was something special about his son and decided to have Keith's IQ tested. When the results arrived, James's suspicions were confirmed. The test showed that Keith was remarkably gifted for his age. James then sat Keith down and stressed to him that he was destined for great things, and according to James, his son was never the same after that conversation. He said that it was like a switch had been flipped inside his son, and suddenly Keith could do no wrong. It was like he was Jesus Christ walking the earth. I mean, that's fairly intense, isn't it? It's like, well, we got you tested, son, and you're extremely bright. So now we expect a great deal from you. And don't get me wrong, there's definitely a correlation between IQ and success, but I'm pretty sure it tapers off at some point. And doesn't it even, like, fold back in on itself? <laughs> Someone with a higher IQ would be able to tell you what sort of graph that is. Um, but it's like, I think there's a point where your IQ gets so high that it starts, your success starts going in the other direction because, like, you lose... I don't know, the ability to like interact with normal people because you're just so bright. That's why I have trouble interacting with normal people. Because of my incredibly big brain. <laughs> Two years after offering these words of encouragement, James abandoned his wife and child to move in with his mistress, a woman that he a woman that he would later marry and live with for the rest of his life. Although his father made short, irregular appearances throughout the rest of his childhood, Keith was left largely in the care of his ill mother from this point on. By all accounts, she was a good mother. However, this was still a terrible situation for any child to find themselves in. Yeah, I have to say, like, being an absent father and leaving the picture is probably not a great way to encourage your child to do great things because I'm pretty sure, like, present parents is going to have a pretty, pretty strong correlation there with success. You would think. 
When Keith entered elementary school, he found it difficult to make new friends. When he tried to speak to the other children about any of their interests, they didn't seem interested in what he had to say. So instead of pursuing friendship further, Keith delved into the world of science fiction novels. While reading the words of Isaac Asimov, he became obsessed with a novel called Second Foundation, a book in which the protagonist learns to control other people's thoughts and desires. Since Keith believed that he was remarkably gifted and destined for great things, he quickly decided that he would be the one to someday perfect mind control and make it a reality. And in a way, he kind of figured it out, didn't he? Because it's like we can't like use mind, literal mind control to like control other people's thoughts, but we can absolutely use manipulation and psychology. And if you're incredibly charismatic, that's going to make it a whole lot easier, isn't it, Keith? Keith would later say that this book heavily influenced him and inspired him to ruthlessly pursue his goal, no matter what the world thought of him. To him, having a moral code was simply a self-imposed shackle that served no other purpose than to limit his own personal growth in order to gain the worthless approval of those around him. Keep this in mind, because as we move forward, you're going to see how everything Keith does through his life is nothing more than a collection of cold, calculated moves that were carefully plotted to move him towards his end goal. In the rare exceptions, when Keith's actions are dictated by emotion rather than logic, they are usually the result of a desire for re revenge or an impulse to destroy. I have to say, Keith, you're sounding like a bit of a psychopath, to be honest. Like, uh, like that saying that sort of shit, if you find yourself saying, like, um, and you're not an edgy teenager, saying, like, a moral code is just something that gets in the way of my success. Other people will fall by the wayside because of their moral codes, and I shall prevail. If you're, like, over 20, <laughs> and you're thinking that shit, stop thinking that shit. It's broken, and it's up and it's not going to make you more successful or happy. It's just going to make you seem like a prick. Stop trying to be an edgy teenager. Oh, one of the earliest indicators of who Keith would later become first appeared when he was only 12 years old. While Keith did have trouble finding friends at school, he did not have trouble finding girlfriends. And in the evenings after school, he used the family's home telephone to call and flirt with these girls. Vera, who realized that her son was spending an unusual amount of time on the phone, began eavesdropping in on these conversations from a handset in the other room to ensure Keith was behaving appropriately for a child his age. As it turns out, he was not. While listening, Vera heard Keith speaking with dozens of different girls who each told were special to him. He told them that they were meant to be together and would be together forever. Oh my god, Keith, you little psycho. You little psycho. If I heard my son doing that, or my daughter, I'd be like, well, we took you for the IQ check and now we're going to take you for the psycho check. Or whatever they do. Or like, you're gonna, you, you need to get into therapy. We need to straighten that out because that's not okay. And you shouldn't be playing with other people's feelings like that. Not that I'm particularly even concerned about the other people. I'm just concerned about what psycho you're becoming. Keith. Jesus, Keith. Stop it. It's not known what, if anything, Vera did to discipline her son, but whatever it was, it didn't work as this type of behavior continued all through his younger years until he earned the reputation of a creepy little womanizer. When Keith was 13, his mother went, underwent open-heart surgery and, was forced, and he was forced to become a full-time caretaker. In the evenings after school, Keith took Vera to her doctor's appointments and encouraged her to take care of herself. However, unfortunately, Vera did not take care of her health as seriously as Keith did. She began drowning her sorrows in alcohol, wallowing in loneliness, and refusing to seek help either her worsening mental or physical health problems. As this was happening, James sometimes made short reappearances, but overall, Keith was forced to watch alone as his mother's health continued to decline. Keith Rainier, ladies' man. After graduating high school at the age of 17, Keith left home and began taking classes at Rensselaer... <laughs> 
I feel like this one's got so many difficult pronunciations. It shouldn't be set in uh, in America with their wonderful English speaking. Rensselaer, a private university that specialized in technology research. While studying there, Keith found himself surrounded by people who were just as easy to manipulate as his childhood girlfriends, and soon he began courting multiple women. How he managed to do all of this is up for debate. However, after reading statements from many of the women who dated him throughout his college years, I think I have a decent idea about what made him so irresistible. What is it? Like, he doesn't have a moral compass. So he's got no qualms about like lying and all of this stuff. And he's very intelligent. And he seems to be able to parlay that intelligence into a charm and charisma. And he's not bad looking. So that seems like quite a good recipe for success with the ladies, doesn't it? Keith may not have been a genius as he later claimed, but he was undeniably intelligent. Well, you only have to have an eye. Like genius, isn't that like late 30s, late 130s, like 138 or something for genius or 140? Something like that. So that's not that. I mean, it's high, but it's not like outrageously high. There's plenty of geniuses. He graduated high school. And if they're saying he's remarkably gifted, that's genius. I don't, I don't think like remarkably gifted isn't like the category below genius, is it? Let's see. Remarkably gifted IQ. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to say like profoundly gifted is the term they use here, which is an IQ of 160 or higher, which is well beyond a genius IQ. So moderately gifted, 130 to 145. And these are still very intelligent people at these IQ ranges. Genius IQ. I know people will be in the comments being like, IQ doesn't even matter, Simon. Yeah, I mean, it does to some degree, doesn't it? Uh, sorry, score of 140 is genius. I thought it was late 130s, but 140. Okay, cool. So he is beyond genius. He graduated high school a year early and was able to give off the appearance of intelligence through the way he spoke, the vocabulary he used, and the way he carried himself. He was also athletic, claiming to be a judo master and was described as a scruffy, self-assured non-conformist, which, if he had been attending college in the late 2000s, means he would have also probably been carrying a MacBook Pro. <laughs> yeah, I feel like since now everybody has MacBooks, it's like a little bit different. Like, but they definitely used to be that, like, oh, a little bit edgy, are you? Got that MacBook? Got that MacBook? I switched to Mac, like, well after it was, like, no, weird. I think when I did it, I was like, wasn't it like half of people had MacBooks? And now it's like, most people have MacBooks, right? In addition to this, Keith was also very particular about the women he chose to pursue. He intentionally targeted vulnerable women under the age of 20 who came from broken homes and were struggling with their classes. <laughs> That's also a bit weird. I mean, by a bit weird, I mean, that's just like psycho, dude. You're selecting people, not not based on the qualities, but based on their, their not their failings, but their weaknesses. That's weird, dude. You should be attracted to people, not attracted to what's wrong with them. He was able to gain access to these women through an on-campus tutoring program, which he volunteered for. While tutoring these women, he took full advantage of the minute position of power that he held over them, exploiting their trust, and he used the manipulative behavior that he had perfected throughout his childhood to seduce and sleep with them. For Keith, this arrangement was fantastic. However, something in his life was about to change. While Keith was attending his sophomore classes at RPI, his mother passed away at the age of 47, and while Keith has refused to speak honestly about this time in his life, it's obvious that her death affected him greatly. After returning to college following her funeral, Keith's grades dropped significantly which caused him to get, eventually graduate with a GPA of 2.26, which is well below average. Yeah, isn't like a GPA of like 4.0? Very good. And it's also this Rainier dude. Rain, Rainier, oh, God damn it. Rainier or whatever. He's, he's profoundly gifted or whatever, according to this thing. I've never heard 
And I'm not saying that doesn't mean it's not a good school or whatever. And it's like, I'm not the authority on like knowledge about American universities. But Polytechnic, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, private university, doesn't exactly sound, it's not Yale, is it? So why is he not getting a 4.0 at Yale if he's got an IQ of over 160? And people do say he's intelligent. After this, something else changed. Keith turned to religion and developed a deep love for Eastern philosophy, particularly Buddhism. Somehow, there was something about the Buddhist religion that meshed well with his other selfish beliefs. And as his ego continued to grow, he began presenting himself as a guru. While he would later show disdain for this label, it's obvious that's how Keith saw himself. Soon, he began incorporating his religious beliefs into his tutoring sessions. And while teaching that one's mind and soul are inseparably connected, he began converting his students to Buddhism. While assisting them with their stud with both their studies and offering them life advice, Keith built a much stronger bond with these women than was typical of most college sexual relationships. It was like these women were sleeping with their teacher, their spiritual guide, and their best friend and confidant all rolled into one. You've just basically found every position of power that you can, in whatever small way, presented yourselves as the person in that position of power and then used it to your advantage. You've not just been like, yeah, yeah, let's just be teacher to students and I'll use that to manipulate them. It's no, no, no. Let's also throw in guru, spiritual guide, best friend, and confidants. Let's just throw in all, all of them. <laughs> what the f***? Man. When asked about why they had dated Keith, one woman said that Keith had a way of making her feel like she was the only person in the room. When Keith looked into her eyes, she felt like he was seeing into her soul, possibly reading her mind. This intensity gave his claims of enlightenment a sense of validity. While seducing her, Keith said that women who had slept with him in the past often had religious out-of-body experiences and saw hallucinations and bright lights shining down from heaven. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Keith's like, I'm exceptional in bed. <laughs> Have you ever had an out-of-body experience? <laughs> I'll tell you what. When she slept with Keith, she confirmed that she did see those visions and lights, although she now believes that what she saw was the results of Keith's powers of persuasion. She saw what Keith wanted her to see because she wanted to believe that he was actually that special. It's kind of crazy. Like, I'm, I, I don't want to say I'm impressed because it's super dark, but it's like to be that manipulative and to be that motherfucker to be able to make people believe that stuff, it's like that's quite incredible. Now, while Keith's actions up to this point have obviously been sleazy, uh, there was nothing illegal about what he was doing because all of the women Keith had seduced were over the age of 18. However, this changed when the 24-year-old began pursuing a 15-year-old girl named Gina Melita. Bruh. <laughs> no. According to Melita, she met Rainier at a community theater function hosted by RPI and immediately fell in love with him. She thought he was brilliant, funny, and impressive beyond any person she'd ever met. Yeah, because he's 24 and she's 15. If you're 15, you're going to be impressed by people who are older than you because you're like, whoa, Lee's so wise and old. Because <laughs> you're a dumb teenager with your brain all like, because you're a teenager. There's all sorts of hormones. And Keith's a sleazy f Despite her age, Keith seemed smitten with her as well. He began taking Gina to restaurants and arcades, the type of dates that a 15-year-old girl enjoyed, and shared his favorite science fiction novels with her while continuing to brag about his intellectual and physical achievements. Eventually, Keith and Gina had sex, and afterwards, Keith stressed to her that their relationship must be kept secret at all costs. Yeah, Keith, because if she tells, you're going to prison. Now, I don't think it needs to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. At only 15 years old, Gina was too young to consent to having sex with with Keith, and their sexual relationship was nothing more than statutory rape. Later in life, Gina acknowledged this. However, for now, she didn't see it that way. Yeah, of course she didn't. Like, <laughs> she didn't see it that way, because I just described her brain as... <laughs> like, 
Yeah, and then she realizes later as an adult, which is why <laughs> there are laws protecting children. Jesus Christ, what the f***, Keith? To Keith, to her, Keith was an older man, which made the situation even more enticing. He's a pedophile, essentially. Soon after Keith began abusing Gina physically, wait, thank you, using the correct terminology, he began abusing her mentally as well. Keith preferred his girlfriends to be exceptionally skinny, and he suggested that she lose weight in order to keep his interest. Gina was reluctant at first, but eventually agreed because she was concerned about losing Keith to a college girl. In the following months, Keith even suggested that Gina drop out of high school so that he could personally handle the remainder of her education himself. He said that all of her teachers were idiots and that he could help her attain her GED long before the rest of her classmates could graduate. Is that, you can't just, is how it works in America? You just have to pass some like GED test? And then they're like, hey, I don't even know what GED stands for. Education degree? General education degree? graduating education degree i don't know i don't care but you can't can someone just like train you up on that and then you go do it and it's like yeah school's done you just have to pass this test that's all obviously in hindsight this was just an attempt to further isolate gina from her peers so that he could more effectively control her surprisingly despite keith's growing hold on her gina defied his wishes and refused to drop out of school to be with him when keith realized that the young girl was too hard-headed for him to control effectively he lost interest in pursuing her after a total of four months, Keith and Gina's relationship ended on bad terms. Keith's going to be like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, don't tell anyone. I'm sorry. Don't tell anyone. Although Keith did tell her that she was welcome to continue using him for sex if the desire ever arose. <laughs> what a sweetheart. Keith, you sleazy little aren't you? You sleazy little Years later, while speaking about their relationship, Gina said that she was one of the few women to quickly realize that Keith was using her. She recognized that he was a braggart whose every word was just a thinly veiled attempt to guide her towards the bedroom. She only wished she had realized sooner. Seeing that his time with Gina Melita was officially over, Keith then set his sights on another 15-year-old girl, also named Gina, Gina Hutchinson. Like Melita, Gina Hutchinson was attracted to the idea of dating an older man. However, unlike Melita, she was never able to fully escape Rainier's grasp, and the two continued on again, off again, until she was in her mid-30s. I'm not going to victim blame her. I'm going to say, like, because I'd, I'd, you'd think, like, uh, you know, like the first Gina, she gets to a point and she's like, whoa, I, I was 15, he was 24. But if you stay in that relationship, Keith is obviously incredibly manipulative. He's just going to manipulate the shit out of you. Until now I'm realizing, like, that interview with the, the on the H3 with the dude who was, like, into this Nexium shit. And it's like, he was, even though this Keith dude, the leader of the cult, whatever, is in prison for like 100 years, he's, like, defending him and and it's because like his manipulation is so powerful. He's like a manipulation god. During this time, Keith subjected Gina Hutchinson to the same abuse that he had subjected Gina Melita to. He claimed to have sex with her over 300 times by the time she was 18 and forced her to adhere to a strict diet to keep her figure slim. Why would you claim that? <laughs> You're essentially saying, I have sexually assaulted her 300 times. <laughs> Keith, what are you up to? You shouldn't be saying that. His attempts to have Hutchinson drop out of school were also eventually successful, although she did eventually return to college to pursue her degree. At the end of the day, Gina claimed to love Keith. However, she was constantly unsatisfied with his lack of commitment to her, and when she discovered his polyamorous lifestyle and multiple other sex partners, she decided it was time for her to leave. Unfortunately, she returned, and then left again, and then returned again. Over the next 18 years, Gina was in and out of Rainier's life constantly. Each time she worked up the courage to leave him, she was inevitably dragged back in by her love for him, or more likely, 
his abusive control over her. One of the ways Keith controlled Gina was by insisting that she and all his other girlfriends befriend one another. After this, each time Gina finally worked up the courage to leave him, all her friends, Keith's other girlfriends, worked overtime to bring her back. What the f***, man? <laughs> this is so f***. Up. At first, they tried encouraging her, but when that stopped working, they told her that she needed to shut up, stop being so selfish, and share Keith with them. Keith Rainier, successful businessman. After graduating from college, Keith was determined to make a name for himself, but he found that there was one major problem standing in his way. He needed money. Yes, you need that. To earn some, Rainier took a job at Amway. <laughs> okay, what are you going to do? <laughs> I don't want to describe it as the word that I'm thinking of because, I mean, probably it's technically not because it still exists. What do they What do they call it? Like, um, there's a word, you know, that's not the, the big P. That Multi-level marketing. Multi-level, okay, it says it right here. <laughs> a multi-level marketing company that is still open to this day and sells overpriced beauty products. While at working there, he became obsessed with Amway's management structure and began trying to find ways to adapt their style of leadership to suit his own needs. Eventually, he left Amway and began working for the New York State Division of Patrol as a computer programmer. That's a bit of a jump, isn't it? While working here, Renier reportedly tested motivational speeches on his co-workers. He delivered these speeches during tear-filled emotional meetings in which he frequently referred to himself as a cultivator of people. Tear-filled? Really? You're working in the division of parole? That's the, that's the job where it's like you look after people who've left prison and you're a computer programmer for them. What opportunities do you have to deliver like motivational speeches? What I'm imagining is a scene from The Office where he's just trying to give a talk in the break room and no one's given a sh they're just trying to eat their lunches. Since Keith was not satisfied with creeping out his co-workers, he then began looking for ways to both feed his ego and gain a bit of fame. To do this, he applied and was accepted into the exclusive Mega Society. Now, if you're like me, Matthew, and your IQ is so painfully ordinary that you've never even heard of the Mega Society, I've not heard of the Mega Society, then allow me to fill you in on what I learned while researching. The Mega Society is a group of extraordinarily high IQ individuals who like to do the highest IQ thing imaginable, sit around and brag about their intelligence. In order to be accepted into this prestigious group, you must first take a test to determine if you qualify to be a one in a million. The group's term for its members. Once accepted, you are presented with the only benefit the society is authorized to provide bragging rights. One in a million is going to be like, that's going to be a massively high IQ. It's going to be like 200 or 180 or something massive. Yes, unfortunately for its few haughty members, the Mega Society's test is not officially recognized by any group within academia because it is an unmonitored, non-standardized test that does not require any type of professional validation or oversight. So in summary, belonging to the Mega Society means you're a bit of a dick and the only person you should admire because of their association with it is Ronald K. Hoflin, the group's founder. You should admire him because he discovered a way to profit off people's desire to feel superior to others, which is, in my opinion, pretty funny. Oh, what, you have to pay to be a member of the Mega Society? <laughs> I feel like really bright, re really bright people can be really dumb sometimes. I feel like if you've got a really high IQ, you don't need to go around telling people you've got a really high IQ. It's not like if you've got loads of money, you don't need to go around telling people that you've got loads of money. <laughs> it's just that you quietly carry on with it, don't you? Unless you're a bit of a dick. 
Keith, who was one of those people, jumped at the opportunity when he saw the test published in an April 1985 edition of Omni magazine. He filled out the test without any supervision, mailed it in, and received his membership several months later after the Mega Society determined that he had scored the highest marks ever recorded in the history of the group. Is this true? This feels like something he made up in a biography about himself, like a puff piece. Although, as we have already discussed, this test and the Mega Society itself mean absolutely nothing, Keith was then added to the 1989 issue of the Guinness Book of World Records and declared one of the smartest men alive. Guinness World Book of World Records is allegedly, in my opinion, also kind of nonsense. Because you have to pay to get into it, and it's just... It's just a bit nonsense. In my opinion, it's a bit nonsensey. After this, Keith began making media appearances where he bragged about possessing an IQ of 240, a number that has never even been proven, and also saying that he'd been a child prodigy. He claimed that he'd been capable of speaking in full sentences by the age of two and completely understood quantum physics by the age of four. That sounds like bullshit. If these claims sound unbelievable to you, then you're apparently more skeptical than the people who interviewed Keith at the time because most of them simply ate it up. <laughs> In 1990, when Keith was 30, he founded Consumers Byline Inc., a company that sold and provided discounts on home appliances and services for middle-income families. As the company's founder and spokesman, Keith began marketing himself as a financial genius and used his charisma and fame to quickly make a name for his company. Now, why exactly was this super genius selling refrigerators and not revolutionizing some niche industry? Well, apparently, nobody thought to ask. Keith was making money, and that was all that mattered when it came time to talk about his next business mastermind. At first, CBI was extraordinarily successful. So successful, in fact, that Keith needed to keep hiring more employees to sell the massive amounts of products that he had stored inside the company's warehouse. To do this, he began recruiting suckers, I mean investors, who acted as salesmen before contributing money to the company and selling its products to the general public. That sounds a lot like uh, the big P or um, a multi-level marketing scheme, doesn't it? Like when you have to buy in like when it's like, hey, you just have to pay like two thousand pounds, and you'll get all these products, which you can sell to your friends. And by sell to your friends, why don't you sell them the opportunity to join this amazing scheme for two thousand pounds? <laughs> oh, I mean, that would be a pyramid scheme, wouldn't it? That would. Not that this is, or not that Amway is. I'm not saying that. I'm just describing a pyramid scheme. However, because demand for the company's products was growing so rapidly, Keith soon began requiring his investors to recruit investors of their own. The new investors were then required to recruit even newer investors, under which they were required to recruit even newer investors. Oh, what's that beginning to look like? <laughs> this continued for several years until CBI's management structure began to look like a giant pyramid. <laughs> Eventually, while the people at the bottom of the pyramid were out pounding the pavement and struggling to sell CPI's overpriced products, Keith and a few of the early adopters at the top were raking in millions of dollars from membership fees and a small percentage of each sale. The business, which Keith assured everyone was not a pyramid scheme, was later determined to be a pyramid scheme by the Federal Trade Commission and apparently shut down in 1996. You can say it's not a pyramid scheme all you are, but when the FTC are like, it's a pyramid scheme, it's a pyramid scheme, isn't it? As punishment for his involvement, Keith was required to pay $40,000 in fees and promised to never participate in promoting, offering, or granting participation in a chain of distribution scheme. Of this $40,000 fee, Keith is believed to have only paid roughly $9,000. That is barely even a slap on the wrist. Calling that a slap on the wrist would be too much. He made millions. And they're saying for involvement in it. It's like, he made the pyramid. He's like the Egyptian sun god or whatever. No, I mean, the regular people built the pyramids to like worship gods or like keep themselves alive or whatever. I feel like I should know that. What was it for? Burial chambers so they could like transition to the afterlife. But Keith was whoever, he was the man who built those pyramids. 
And it's like, essentially they're saying you have to pay us a little bit of a fine because $40,000 if you're a millionaire is not that much money. And then they're like, and don't do it again. <laughs> Over the decade that all of this was happening, Keith's personal life was just as complicated as it has always been. He continued to date and live with multiple women and by the year 2000 claims to have had sex with hundreds of women throughout his life so far. One of these women was Tony Natalie. Tony and Keith met shortly after CBI was founded when she and her husband attended one of the company's many recruitment seminars. After joining CBI and moving her family to New York to be closer to the company, Keith took a personal interest in Tony's development and the two began having regular one-on-one -on -one meetings during their off hours. During those meetings, Keith coached Tony on how to discover new opportunities, be successful, and live a happier life. I'm gonna guess something else is happening in those meetings which might be covered in the next line. Unfortunately for Tony's husband, the first step to achieving all of that success was leaving him so that Tony could join Keith's ever-expanding harem. Eventually, Keith founded the National Health Network, a company that sold and distributed health supplements and tasked Natalie with running it. Around the same time that CBI went under, so did National Health Network. As Keith's companies were beginning to fail, Tony attempted to distance herself from the financial wizard who had cost her everything, but instead of accepting his failure and just letting go, Keith became violently angry and threatened to kill her. According to Tony, his exact words were, I will see you dead or in jail. For what, Keith? If anyone's a dodgy-ass criminal, who ends up in prison, by the way, spoiler alert, it's you. What did Tony do wrong? <laughs> she got divorced because you manipulated her. Jesus, Keith, you prick. Keith then opted for a latter option and used his extensive wealth to drag Tony through the gutter of the legal system for over 20 years. During this time, she was served dozens of bogus lawsuits in prison twice and subjected to what she referred to as terrorism by litigation. In addition to this, when Tony was not in court, Keith would send other women to stalk, harass, threaten, and embarrass her wherever she went. You petty douchebag. And, and by petty, I mean also short. Hmm. <laughs> In a relatively short time, Tony lost her home, her business, her family, her health, and her peace of mind. Keith had taken everything from her, and he was still not satisfied. He continued this charade until the bitter end, and if he had not been stopped, she likely would still be living the miserable life that he had crafted her for her out of spite. That is such a massive douchebag move. I'm very curious about something that I'm going to look up right now. He's five foot seven. He's not a tall man. I like imagining him as small. <laughs> My small little man. Keith Rainier, life coach. Not that if you're 5'7 or shorter or whatever. It's it's just like when you're a douchebag and small. <laughs> it's like, f*** you, Keith. Now, as a self-described financial genius who had only managed to operate two failed businesses and make a mess of his personal life, Keith did something rather ironic. He began authoring a series of self-help courses designed to guide others towards financial and personal success. Keith. <laughs> yeah, but mate, unless you're trying to sell that book to the small number of people who want to have like a weird-ass harem and live some sort of very strange sexual life, or you want to, you know... And a finance book, Keith. You got you you made a pyramid scheme that collapsed, and then you got fined forty grand by the FTC. No one should be taking financial advice from you, Keith. While writing these courses, Keith met a woman named Nancy Salzman, the therapist of one of his girlfriends. Like Renier, how is one of those therapists? How is one of the girlfriends' therapists not being like, you know, you're in a toxic relationship, right? This is not good. This is not good. <laughs> if I was Keith, I'd be like, don't go see therapists. They're going to say stuff that isn't true about our relationship. <laughs>
Like Ranieri, Salzman was very interested in the potential of neurolinguistic programming and often employed hypnosis as part of a patient's treatment plan. This, of course, fascinated Ranieri, who was eager not only to learn from her, but also bring her on board with a new venture that he was currently planning. Is neurolinguistic programming actually a thing that works, or is that like, is that, is that real science? Oh no, I just skipped right ahead in the document and now I'm going to be so lost. Oh God. Look, I want to know, is NLP real? NLP wiki let's see what wikipedia has to say natural language pro oh yeah the oh i'm glad that now natural language processing is uh it's bullshit dude is uh what is the wiki for nlp but it's not the nlp that i wanted neurolinguistic programming is a pseudoscientific approach okay so it's not real <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia is literally the first line. It's a pseudoscientific approach to communication and personal development and psychotherapy. So, uh, no, not a real thing. Good. Together, the pair founded the Executive Success Program, also known as ESP, which would later be rebranded as Nexium. Now, to understand how Nexium morphed from a self-help course into what it would later become, it's important to understand Renieri's inspirations and goals for his company. Nexium had three major influences: Amway's MLM structure, the writings of Anne Rand and Isaac Asimov, and the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard via the Church of Scientology. You are drawing like I like Isaac Asimov. <laughs> And Anne Rand is a definitely a controversial figure, and I don't like Amway, and I don't like Scientology. Um, so that is a mixed bag of weirdness right there. The last influence is particularly relevant, as much of Nexium's ideology, methods, and even terminology was ripped directly from Scientology's playbook. For instance, one of the major appeals of both Scientology and Nexium was their focus on individual development through group seminars and workshops. These workshops were called intensives, which, if you're not familiar with Scientology, is the exact same term that they use. These intensives were heavily marketed toward the next generation of wealthy and even claimed to be able to cure physical ailments such as diabetes and scoliosis. <laughs> okay. When it came to fill in the blanks and replace the parts of Scientology that Keith didn't like, he turned to Anne Rand. While sometimes plagiarizing whole sections of her writings, Keith advocated for a relentless self-improvement by any means. This meant that stepping on others to get, in a get ahead of life was not only permitted, but it was also encouraged so long as their selfish actions did not harm Keith. Nexium. He also encouraged his followers to have disdain for the poor and needy by labeling them parasites and declaring charity a moral evil that goes against nature. <laughs> Keith. All this is doing is like painting a picture of me of Keith Renere as the douchiest douchebag who has ever lived. Like everything he does is just like sleazy and nasty and kind of morally repugnant. And yet, people still love this douchebag. Like, disdain for the poor. F***ing hell. Once the, <laughs> once the finishing touches were placed on the courses, Keith began imagining how he and Nancy would be perceived by the group. This thought process led Keith to abandon his name in favor of the title Vanguard. Nancy chose the name Proctor. Oh, we're back to being edgy teenagers. <laughs> I'm no longer Simon. You can address me as Vanguard Maximus. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
Ah, oh, Jesus. Once they were open for business, seminar attendees were lured in and convinced to pay thousands of dollars for life advice from a smelly man with a silly name. At first, the price tag was small, but as soon as one course was completed, another one was offered at a higher price. Sounds like a bit like Scientology, doesn't it? Once that one was completed, they were then elevated to a new level, given the title with, given a title within the organization, and offered even more expensive courses. Surprisingly, after finishing these new courses, many attendees did not feel like they had been scammed. Instead, they walked away feeling enlightens like the dude on the h3 podcast who was like yeah no i no longer have tourettes <laughs> and the whole story about why he thought he had tourettes in the beginning and i'm just like listening to it and you find out his backstory and it's like you just said you had tourettes once because you were just listen to the interview jesus it's a crazy story and the, the, it just it's just such bullshit in my opinion. Keith's plan had worked. Even though it was all a scam designed to line his pockets to feed his ego, those who felt connected to Keith's teachings showed an eagerness to continue the courses. As his confidence grew, Keith encouraged his most dedicated followers to move to New York to be near him. Many of these followers are highly wealthy and influential figures who had more money than sense, and they were eagerly seeking out Rainier's version of New Age Enlightenment. Some of the most notable people involved with Nexium were Claire, Bronfman, the heiress to the Seagram Beverage Company, never heard of the Seagram Beverage Company, and Emiliano Salinas, the son of the former president of Mexico. Oh my god, these, like, whatever you like, if you're the heir to a company, and if you're an heiress, and it's just about, like, like an American heiress, like, not about, like, you know, count someone or whatever, like Europe, but, like, with money, it's like, there's money, you're rich, they got lots of money. Having these big names attached to Nexium did wonders for the company's credibility, and Keith made sure to take full advantage of them. Claire Bronfman was even given a position of leadership within the company after contributing unprecedented amounts of money to help Nexium continue growing and recruiting new members. Another way that Nexium mirrored Scientology oh, was its plan to recruit Hollywood celebrities, although they were much less successful than the church was. While Scientology has Tom Cruise, John Travolta, and Nancy Cushier, they're Bart Simpson! Nancy Cartwright, holy sh**, and many, many more A-list celebrities. I'm always so surprised when you read that list of celebrities who, are, who are, uh, believe in Scientology. It's surprisingly long and surprisingly many. Just everyone wants to hang out with Tom Cruise because he's a legend, even though he is in Scientology. And next, he only managed to bag a few B-list celebs. The most notable among them were two of the actresses from the television show Smallville, Christine Crook and Alison Mack. Was Christine Crook? I have no idea if that's pronounced it. She played um, Lana Lang on that show these are that plaster <laughs> of the past smallville i loved it out of these two keep the name allison mack at the back of your mind because she will become very important to our story a little later because of all this nexium's membership took off like a rocket ship however not everything was all sunshine and roses you see oh by the way the guy who played lex luther on smallville um his name totally escapes me now which is bad because i'm about to give his podcast a plug Michael Rosenbaum has a great podcast. It's really good, and it doesn't have enough. Like, I, I maybe it's more popular now, but I'm always surprised. It, it has like tens of thousands, or maybe hundreds of thousands of views, and you're like, "This is no more views," because it's really good and it's really nicely produced. And Michael Rosenbaum is a really good interviewer, and he seems just like a chill dude, and it's just really nice to listen to. That's it's a good podcast, and he's interviewed um, the guys from Smallville. I maybe also really like it because I really like Smallville, but it's good. And he's interviewed um, Christine Crook. I'm really sorry if that's not how you say that name. And uh, that was super interesting. He's interviewed uh, Tom Welling, the guy who played um, 
Oh God, Superman. <laughs> Clark Kent. It's so good. It's a good show. Because of this, Nexium's membership took off like a rocket ship. However, not everything was all sunshine and roses. You see, as the company was attracting big names and attempting to present itself as a wholesome self-help course, there were already a few skeletons beginning to slip out of the young company's closet. In 2003, an article in Forbes magazine shed some light on Nexium's darker practices. This article, titled Cult of Personality, oh no, <laughs> you're reading Forbes. Uh, can you imagine Keith's like, oh wow, I'm going to be in Forbes, this is going to be great. Little f- narcissist, let's go. And then you open it up, the front page is your face like darkly lit and it says Cult of Personality. You're like, oh no, Forbes, you did me dirty. I focused heavily on Keith's past and dubbed him the world's strangest executive coach. It talked about his failed businesses, CBI and National Health Network, and directly exposed Nexium's cult-like practices. These practices included encouraging members to isolate themselves from family members who were not supportive of their involvement, wearing colored sashes that differentiate rank, and forcing female members to greet Keith with a kiss on the mouth when he entered the room. My worry is that when there's an article out there, there are people who are weird. And they're going to be like, that sounds good to me. And then they're going to go and join Nexium. So as much as Ford, 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 as much as Forbes think they're exposing this cult, I think there's going to be people who are like, yeah, nice, no, it? Kissing Keith Rainier on the mouth. He's a short king. Like, I like him. I like his ways. I want to be, as we'll find out later, like branded and like. There are people who are weird, and they'll go, and it just gives him this exposure. It also pointed out, while many members enjoyed the program, right, some who underwent the intensive suffered psychological breaks and had to be institutionalized afterwards. They also spoke about how Keith weaponized the legal system against Tony Natalie and others who had violated the group's mandatory non-disclosure agreement. Well, I don't think that's weaponizing the legal system. If you signed a non-disclosure agreement, and then you disclose... Well, you're going to get sued. <laughs> That's why you have a non-disclosure agreement. Like I've had, I can't think of stuff. I I couldn't even say if I what they were if I did if I could remember them. But I've signed non-disclosure agreements, and it's like very clear when you're signing the non-disclosure agreement, you can't talk about that shit unless they say that you can talk about it. Like, <laughs> what do you expect? I mean, I think that's the first time in this entire episode that I've been on Keith's side. But like, otherwise, dick. <laughs> By this point in our story, Raniere and his attorneys had even managed to persuade a judge to take away Tony's 10-year-old son and give custody to the boy's father. The article also revealed that most members have paid over most members have paid over $100,000 for an 18-month course, while some of the group's wealthiest members like Clara Bromfham were paying upwards of $25,000 per day. Holy f***ing shit, bro. What the f*** is worth 25 grand a day? in like executive coaching. If you can afford 25 grand a day, I'll tell you what, you're already an ex- a successful enough executive, aren't you? <laughs> Upon the release of this article, Keith and the higher-ups in Nexium were stunned by the coverage. Keith himself had given interviews to Forbes magazine in the weeks leading up to the expose's release that he assumed had gone well. It's exactly what I thought. Obviously, they had not. Feeling the tides of public opinion turning against him, Keith began a campaign to distance himself from the allegations. This included hiring a PR team, abandoning some of the cult's more concerning language, such as referring to himself as a guru, and declaring himself celibate. Um, I don't think, like, calling yourself a guru is the big thing. What were you, like, Maximus or whatever? Vanguard! Like, that that's more concerning. Like, oh, no, I'm not. Like, calling yourself a guru is like, there's plenty of people who call themselves gurus. Just, I feel like it's become a weird way of saying you're an expert on something. Like, I'm a YouTube guru. Like, I know all of that on YouTube. You get people like this or whatever. But, like, calling yourself, like, a Vanguard or Vanguard as a name? 
That's weird, dude. Nexium even began seeking an endorsement from the Dalai Lama, an endorsement they received on May the 6th, 2009, during a conference held in Albany, New York. Okay. During this conference, which Claire Bronfman reportedly financed herself for over $2 million. Who is, is this Claire Bronfman, that heiress woman? Jesus Christ, that's money right there. You just paying $2 million out of your own pocket for a conference to get the Dalai Lama to be like, Nexium's cool. I'm sorry, my chair's become extremely noisy. Can you guys hear that? This chair's always been quiet for years, and now it's just like having a noisy time. The Dalai Lama sat on stage with Keith, presented him with a ceremonial Tibetan scarf, and declared Keith a force for good in front of 3,000 Nexium members. As an interesting side note, this is not the only time the Dalai Lama has accidentally endorsed a cult, as in the early 1990s he also met with Shoko Ashara. No! The leader of the Om Shinriko cult. This is the sarin attack, guys, who carried out a sarin attack on Tokyo's subway system. It killed 12 people and left 6,000 wounded. As all this bad publicity was occurring, Keith also suffered a personal tragedy, the death of his longtime girlfriend, Gina Hutchinson. In late 2002, after participating in one of Nexium's more aggressive intensives, Gina Hutchinson, the woman that Keith had been abusing for over 18 years, committed suicide. She was 33 years old at the time of her death, and her body was discovered in a wooded area near a Buddhist monastery. Beside her, a single spent 20-gauge shotgun shell was found. Keith is said to have been greatly affected by her death, but that's up for debate. Yeah, no, he seems like too psycho for that, doesn't he? He's like, it is the path. <laughs> F*** off, Keith. Surprisingly, the Forbes article was not the end of Nexium. While all the information revealed was accurate, Keith's damage control had worked, and most of the group's members stayed loyal, despite the evidence against him. Their brains have been so fully washed. God damn. Keith Rainier. Ren Rainieri. God damn it. Keith Douchebag. Slave Master. In 2015, as Nexium was reaching the height of its power, Rainier began organizing uh, the creation of a secret subgroup within the company known as Dominus Obsequious Sororium, often referred to as DOS. Those three words, which are a bastardized version of Latin, translate to something resembling Master of the Slave Women. This is the infamous sex cult within Nexium that so many docuseries in recent years have focused heavily on. Right, right, right. So for, for, for newly celibate Keith, right? Now, do you remember the actress that I mentioned earlier? Her name was Alison Mack. And it's time for us to take a closer look at her because she was the person Keith placed in charge of the, in of the entire DOS program. Like so many of Keith's victims, Alison came to Nexium as an extremely at an extremely vulnerable time in her life. When she was 23 years old, Alison was already a successful actress with years of experience under her belt. However, she was most known for a portrayal of Chloe Sullivan on the television show Smallville. Alison liked her role as Chloe. After all, it was a role that had propelled her to stardom, but she also felt that her career had been stunted by. She feared that the world would always know her as that girl from Smallville, and she joined Nexium because she was searching for a way to gain, gain, gain greater confidence and land serious acting roles. At the time of joining, Keith instantly recognized and exploited Allison's lack of confidence, and before long, he had signed her up for multiple intensives. As her devotion to Keith grew, she fully dedicated herself to Nexium, abandoning several acting roles in the process. Keith wanted complete control over her, and she gave it to him. After several years of unwavering devotion, she was rewarded and made head of the highly secretive DOS program. Working in this role, Allison's job was to find and recruit especially vulnerable women who had already been heavily indoctrinated into Nexium's teachings. She acted as the intermediary between Keith and this group of women because nobody involved in the program was allowed to know that Keith himself was secretly over it. 
While recruiting members, Allison pitched the program as a sisterhood within Nexium. She said that it was exclusive to women and focused solely on female advancement and empowerment. Unfortunately, its true intentions were the exact opposite. While signing up for the program, these women were required to undergo an interrogation where they were persuaded to surrender incriminating information or personal property to Mac as a form of collateral. This collateral could be sexually explicit photographs, large amounts of money, personal items that held sentimental value, or even deeds or titles to land and property. They were told that this collateral requirement was in place to ensure that the recruits did not abandon the program before completing it. If they did abandon the program, this collateral would be forfeited to Allison. If it was money or personal property, these items would be never seen again. If it was sexually explicit photographs, they'd be released to the public and forwarded to members of the recruits' family. Once this step was complete, Allison laid out a list of rules for the women to follow. At first, these rules included referring to her as master and themselves as slaves, but eventually it morphed into something more disturbing. <laughs> Jesus, it's already pretty disturbing. Recruits were soon required to start monitoring and limiting their caloric intake to under 500 calories per day, purposefully deprive themselves of sleep, and even take vows that declared their minds and bodies belonging to DOS for life. How long can you survive on 500 calories a day? That's barely anything. It's like half a meal. If you're wondering how these women were persuaded to comply with Allison's ridiculous demands, she explained to them that they were designed to push their bodies and minds to breaking point so members of the DOS program could develop a deeper control over themselves. She said that once they had mastered their body's human desires and needs, they could not be controlled by anyone or anything. In reality, these women were being deprived of food and sleep in order to make them more suggestible and easier to manipulate. While this was happening, the women were also forced to undergo rigorous psychological conditioning. During these sessions, they were strapped down, connected to an electroencephalograph, and shown violent footage of women being murdered and dismembered. They were not told what they were watching until after they were strapped down and their eyes forced open. Supposedly, this was done to further increase their mental fortitude, but we will never know Keith's true motives for this blatant psychological torture. They, this is so f***ed up. <laughs> like... It's like, you already want to run a weird cult, dude. And now you're like, let's get weirder. When the women failed to meet Max's expectations, they were forced to take ice-cold showers, stand naked in freezing temperatures, and do physical exercises until they collapsed from exhaustion. Oh, this is complicated, right? Because I always feel in one of these situations, and I also, because I followed this case, and in, in the court and stuff, it did seem like Alison Mack genuinely was just like, I made a huge mistake and I was vulnerable and this guy got under my skin. And I'm like, yes, yeah, I believe you. But it's also like, it's the just following orders, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I was just following orders. It's like, yeah, but you gassed people. You shot people and put them in a ditch. Not not obviously what's happening here. I'm referring to the Nazis. Um, but it's like, just following orders is not an excuse, is it? And then you say, like, oh, well, she was emotionally manipulating. It's like, so were the Nazis. There was plenty of propaganda. As time passed and their bodies began to break, they no longer understood or cared what was happening to them. And when it came time for Alison to make the most twisted demand so far, many of these women didn't even have the will to object. At the request of Rainier, they were all branded on their inner thighs with his initials. The process took upwards of 30 minutes, during which time they were stripped naked, bound at the hands and ankles, and forced to listeners as Alison and the rest of the group chanted, Feel the pain, feel the love. Before branding them, Mac was instructed by Keith to get their explicit permission. He insisted on this because he 
knew the women needed to believe wholeheartedly that they wanted to be branded, not that they were being coerced or forced to endure it. Specifically, they were told to recite the following. Please brand me. It would be an honor. An honor I want to wear for the rest of my life. Now, if you're wondering what the end goal of the DOS program was, well, there are actually two separate goals. And I'm like, this just seems so weird. And Keith doesn't even seem to be there. The first was simple and straightforward. After each woman had been broken, they were told that their final test was to seduce and to have sex with Keith. I imagine that's really challenging. The motivation for this is obvious. However, the second answer is even more sinister. Once the recruits were fully trained to completely under Renier's control, as Allison was, they were expected to continue serving Allison unquestionably while also recruiting and training new slaves of their own. He's bringing the f***ing pyramid again, isn't he? As unbelievable as it sounds, Renier's primary goal for DOS was to build a network of confident, independent women who could each achieve high levels of power in both the government and private sector while also answering solely to him via Allison Mack. He didn't just Want to control these women sexually, he wanted to control the entire world by placing his slaves in positions of power and essentially turn the entire world into his own personal pyramid scheme. It's as f***ed up as it is kind of… I don't want to give him the credit of it being smart, but it is kind of not dumb. By this point in his life, Keith had fully bought into the idea that he was unstoppable, untouchable, and smarter than everyone else around him. Fortunately, it was this program that would eventually be his undoing. Good. <laughs> Because you're now in prison, aren't you, Keith? Keith Ranieri, inmate. In June of 2017, a former employee of Nexium, Frank Palato, blew the whistle on the DOS program on a blog, Frank Report. Palato worked for Nexium for about six months in the early 2000s, but was fired after he discovered over $80 million had gone missing from the company's books. <laughs> oh my god. This is a bit like, this is not like, I know there's like 3,000 people who are all paying a lot of money. But $80 million to go missing, I assume, allegedly into Keith Raniere's like, own personal like bank accounts or whatever, allegedly. I <laughs> don't know if that's proven in courts. But that is an, this is, they are properly rich now. This is not, this is not small time money. After he was terminated, he made it his life goal to expose Raniere for what he was. And that's exactly what he did. In October of that year, the New York Times picked up the story and published their own expose that focused heavily on Rainier's DOS program, while also shining a light on decades of systematic abuse, harassment, and unethical and illegal behavior that had been committed by Nexium's upper echelon. The details revealed in this expose shocked the public. It revealed how the women of DOS had been mentally and physically tortured, branded, and forced in subservience. It told how Renier had collected an extensive list of collateral against them to further discourage them from coming forward. As news networks picked up the story and ran with it, the floodgates opened and accusations poured in from hundreds of former members. It quickly became clear that this story was not like the story from 2003. It was so much worse. For the first time in his life, Keith was fully exposed, and the sick details of his crimes were on display for the world to see. And one of the most disturbing revelations that emerged during this time was Keith's views on women's sexuality. According to those closest to him, Renier believed that women were only able to achieve true sexual satisfaction through sexual assault, and that all other forms of sex were nothing more than an imitation of the real thing that he provided to them. <laughs> That says more about you, Keith, than it does about other people, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Keith? While speaking to his closest confidants, Keith often bragged that his victims thank him for doing what no other man could. As soon as the expose was revealed, Keith knew that his time in New York was up, and he and several of his most devoted followers, including Alison Mack, fled south of the border to Mexico. Wow! I'm impressed. Normally in these situations, these people who, you know, we've had them on casual criminalists before, they're like, I'm untouchable. Like, no one can get to me. 
The fact that this guy had an exit, and I'm always like, why have you not fled yet? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Why haven't you fled? Uh, what was the latest one? I was like, the the the, the FTX guy who was like, he's living in like Panama or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but bro, they're coming for you. I'm just thinking they're coming for you. You There's this huge alleged fraud of like billions of dollars and they're going to get you extradited. And I'm just like, you must, if, you, if you've been running this company and you've not been like socking like fat stacks of cash under your mattress, ready to make an exit to like Belize or wherever, where they're not going to extradite you. It's like, I was like, why haven't you fled? Why haven't you fled? <laughs> but, he's, but he's fleeing. This is good. Normally these people are so arrogant that they don't flee. Like, and now that dude's like, he's like on bail. Uh, what's his name? The FTX dude. He's on like bail for like a quarter bill or something. It's nuts. That's like, that's the sort of money that they ask for. And it's like, and he's, I'm sure he's like on ankle monitor and stuff. And it's like, that's the sort of money that they ask for when they're going to Bernie made off your ass, you know? That's like, that's like, you're never leaving money. Right? Allegedly. When it came time to charge the people complicit in Keith's crimes, there was much debate about who to prosecute, as many of those responsible were victims themselves. Alison Mack was a perfect example of this. She had done terrible things while working at Nexium. However, she had also had many of those same terrible things done to her. Still, that was not a legal defense, and her involvement went deeper than simply being present during the crimes. Alison had actively and willingly participated. She was the person who had suggested branding the women in the first place. According to a close source to Alison, she once bragged that Keith had simply had suggested simply tattooing the women, but Alison herself was the one who had convinced him to use a cautery iron because she believed that a tattoo did not show enough devotion. That is f***ed up, bro. In her mind, a tattoo could be covered up and forgotten, so she wanted something painful that the women would remember for the rest of their lives. In the end, five people, including Ranieri, were tried and convicted for various crimes. Clara Bronfen, the heiress of the Seagram fortune and Nexium's financier, was convicted of harboring an illegal alien and fraudulent use of a deceased person's identity. <laughs> Did we even cover that? She was given 81 months in prison and ordered to forfeit $6 million. God damn, she probably afforded though, right? $6 million though, Jesus. 81 months in prison? How long is that? Why can't we just do years? I gotta do the maths. 12, 24, 36, 48, 48. It's like seven years, eight years, <laughs> seven years. Ugh. Alison Mack was originally charged with sex trafficking. However, as part of a plea deal, those charges were reduced to racketeering and she was sentenced to three years in prison and issued a $20,000 fine. It's a lot less than six mil, isn't it? Although three years in prison, ah, that's long, but it doesn't feel long for, even though I know, I, I, I guess the plea deal and all of this is like taking a lot into consideration the fact that she was manipulated the shit out of by Keith Ranieri. But it's like, that's, that's, she still did some bad things, probably reflected by the fact that she's in prison for three years. Nancy Salzman, Nexium's co-founder and longtime operations manager, was found guilty of racketeering and conspiracy to racketeer. I don't even know what racketeering is. What is racketeering? Oh, okay. So like extortion. Um, oh, okay. So it's just like profit by crime sort of person set up a coercive fraudulent extortionary otherwise illegal coordinated scheme a racket okay so it could be like there's a picture of al capone here so it's going to be like what shaking down people for protection money or some shit. Uh, she was given 42 months in prison and a $150,000 fine. Uh, Lauren Salzman, Nancy Salzman's daughter, I've not yet mentioned, was charged with racketeering, sentenced five years in prison. Have she no, served no time for agreeing to testify against Keith at his trial? Oh my God, I'd be like, 
I'll be like, I'll be the first person to be like, I will give you everything you need to know about that douchebag Keith. I will sing like a canary. That's called courage. Finally, on June the 19th, 2019, after a six-week trial, Keith Ranieri was found guilty of all charges. Those charges included sexual exploitation of a minor, possession of child pornography, sex trafficking, attempted sex trafficking, forced labor, identity theft, conspiracy to alter records, conspiracy to racketeer, and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. <laughs> Just like, I love, there's so many crimes and they're all so different. Identity theft? <laughs> It's the sort of thing I'd hear about in a YouTube ad read for like a VPN. <laughs> He's a lot. I know he goes to prison for a long time, so let's just find out how long it was. During a sentence uh, sentencing on October the 16th, 2020, Judge Nicholas Garolfus declared that Ranieri had shown little remorse for his actions and handed down a 120-year prison sentence. Since that's like the Bernie Madoff shit. Except, I mean, Bernie Madoff just did financial crimes, so that's really long. But and this guy, like, these are like, I don't want to say proper crimes. Obviously, financial crimes are like proper crimes. <laughs> but like, you know, he branded, he had people branded and he had child pornography and he was a statutory rapist. So this guy, right? 120 years. Bang! Since then, Keith has attempted to appeal his trial on multiple occasions, but none of those appeals have been successful. Good! <laughs> Keith Ranieri, alleged murderer. What? After Keith was given such a lengthy prison sentence, and many considered his story to be over. However, there are still many questions that have never been fully answered. Some of those questions revolve around the mysterious deaths of four women. One of those women was Gina Hutchinson, Keith's longtime girlfriend that committed suicide in 2002. In 2019, a documentary titled The Lost Women of Anexium uh, was released that attempted to raise awareness for Gina and the three other women by telling their stories. It was hosted by Frank Pilato. Oh, wait, he was the, wasn't he the guy who discovered the money missing and exposed him? The man whose blog post exposed the DOS program and pointed out that each of these women were strongly associated with Nexium and Keith Ranere at the time of their deaths. So, what concrete evidence did Frank present during the documentary to prove Keith killed these women? Well, self-admittedly, not much. However, there is enough circumstantial evidence that he feels their deaths warrant mentioning. As a reminder, Gina Hutchison died in 2002 in an apparent suicide. Her body was discovered in a forest outside a Buddhist monastery uh, with a shotgun barrel in her mouth and a prayer amulet in her hands. Inside her journal, Gina wrote that she'd been struggling to find meaning, and all signs pointed toward her death being a suicide. However, unfortunately for us and everyone else researching the case after the fact, the investigation into Gina's death was incompetent at best, as the police seem more than willing to overlook several suspicious elements in order to close the case. Oh, come on, police. The last episode I recorded, yesterday actually, was this one where the police were like absolutely incredible. It was the, um, I've already forgotten what it co was called. It was one of the Hong Kong ones. George wrote it. And I was just like, oh my God, the police, the Yoga Ball murders. The police absolutely cracked that like some Sherlock Holmes. For instance, many of the tests normally performed after an apparent suicide by gun, such as swabbing the victim's hands for signs of gunpowder residue, were never performed. Guys, did you not have you not seen CSI? That's like the number one thing. Considering this simple test could have proven definitively that Gina pulled the trigger herself, it's rather infuriating that this test was skipped over for no apparent reason. In addition to this, they also failed to check the surrounding area for additional footprints or signs that the crime scene may have been staged. In fact, some have speculated that Gina's body may have been transported there after her death since the police did not even bother collecting the shotgun pellets that had traveled through her brain, exited her skull, and left holes in the back of her hoodie. If the shot that had killed her had taken place at the scene, those pellets should have been found lodged inside the trees behind 
behind her. However, they simply were not collected. Lastly, regarding the shotgun itself, it didn't belong to Gina, and the gun's true owner has never been identified. These facts are significant because statistically, women rarely commit suicide by gun. They typically choose something far less violent and messy, such as poison. The fact that the gun did not belong to Gina is even more suspicious because women are even less likely to choose suicide by gun when a gun is not readily available to them. It is extremely rare for a woman to seek out and purchase a gun for the sole purpose of committing suicide. To give credit where it's due, I'll remind you that Gina's own writings inside her diary pointed towards suicide. However, once again, had the police done their job properly, there would be no room for speculation, and we wouldn't even be talking about the possibility that someone else was involved. God damn it, police, do your jobs. Come on. So, beyond police incompetence, what else did Frank and his documentary team point toward as suspicious? Well, first, reports of Keith's behavior around the time of Gina's death were somewhat scattered. Some say that he appeared immediately surprised and grief-stricken, while others reported heartless indifference. When asked about his relationship with Gina at the time of her death, Keith also lied by saying that he had not spoken to Gina in years, when, in fact, the two of them exchanged text messages on a regular basis. Also, despite living just a few miles away from the forest where the body was eventually discovered, Gina been staying at a hotel during the days prior to her suicide. The hotel was located less than a block away from Ranieri's own home, which indicated that the two of them may have been meeting secretly. This is all very suspicious, but it is just not even... It's, it's barely circumstantial. While none of this proves that Keith pulled the trigger himself, and he likely didn't, uh, we do know Keith was a master manipulator, and there are several first-hand accounts that Keith may have manipulated Gina into committing suicide. One of those accounts comes from Gina's sister Heidi. Heidi says that Keith had been suggesting suicide to Gina for some time, and that he and Gina would often discuss the best ways to commit suicide together. He also reportedly sent her text messages of violent suicide scenes from films and real-life crime scene photos for Gina to comment on. Keith also often referred to Gina as his Buddhist goddess. Supposedly, Gina believed that she was the physical incarnation of a goddess designed to guide her people to nirvana. However, as Keith explained to her, she could only do this after shedding her physical form. Remember, Gina's body was discovered outside a Buddhist monastery and clutching a Buddhist amulet in her hand at the time of her death. <sighs> Keith, 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 you extraordinary piece of shit. Is it possible that Keith encouraged Gina to commit suicide? In my opinion, absolutely. Yeah, and I would share that opinion. Matt. Yeah. Four months after his, her death, another woman, Kristen Snyder, suspiciously committed suicide as well. She's the second woman that the documentary focuses on. On February the 6th, 2003, Kristen was attending classes at one of Nexium's event centers in Anchorage, Alaska. That afternoon, while undergoing a particularly stressful intensive where she was expected to divulge her deepest secrets, she became erratic and was forcibly escorted from the building after revealing to her class that she was pregnant with Keith's baby and she was never seen again. Uh, what the f***? man. Despite being a lesbian in a committed relationship, Kristen is believed to have slept with Keith while on a trip to Albany. Keith was known to harbor extremely homophobic views and believed that being a lesbian was unnatural. He often tried to seduce lesbians and bisexual women in order to fix them and turn them straight. It's just like every, it's like you just managed to like sprinkle throughout this script. It's like, how could we make Keith more of a douchebag? Yes, we'll add that into his personality. Two days after her disappearance, Kristen's truck was discovered two hours away, parked beside a lake, with a note in the passenger seat that read, I attended a course called Executive Success Program, aka Nexium, based out of Anchorage, Alaska, and Albany, New York. I was brainwashed, and the emotional center of my brain was killed slash turned off. I still have feeling in my external skin, but my internal organs are rotting. On the next page in a notebook, she wrote, 
No need to search for my body. Okay. Following this discovery, police searched the lake and combed the nearby forest for over four days, but no signs of a body were ever found. In the years since her dis disappearance, Kristen's family has revealed that she was not suicidal. She had been excited about her involvement with Nexium, and her supposed psychological break seemed both uncharacteristic and shockingly sudden. Based on the handwriting, they knew that the note was written by her, but they believe she was under duress while writing it. While neither Kristen nor Gina's deaths prove anything, it's worth noting that the timing of both was extraordinarily convenient. Both women's suicides occurred right around the time that Forbes released their expose, and both women had the potential to cause massive damage to Keith's image. Gina was becoming increasingly vocal about the abuse she had suffered while underage, and Kristen's possible pregnancy would have thrown a massive wrench into the whole celibate thing. Roughly a decade later, two more women, Barbara Jessica and Pamela Caffres, both died mysteriously between 2014 and 2016 while living with Keith inside his New York home. When people are just dying around you, either you're like the most unlucky person in the world or something else, which obviously hasn't been proven in court, and so I won't say. Um, Allegedly. <laughs> both women were intimate with Keith, both women died suddenly, and both women's blood contained elevated levels of heavy metals at the time of deaths. Officially, both women died from inoperable cancer. However, some have speculated that the deaths were the result of poisoning, specifically rat poisoning. As a reminder, throughout his entire life, Keith was very controlling about what foods his girlfriends were allowed to eat, and reportedly kept a lock on the refrigerator door inside his home. It would have been very easy for Keith to poison both Jessica and Caffrey's because he was the one preparing their meals each day. Obviously, Keith and his lawyers deny these allegations. However, Keith was also caught on tape saying the following, quote, I've been shot at because of my beliefs. I've had to make choices. Should I have bodyguards? Should I have them armed or not? I've had people killed because of my beliefs. Dude, you never want to hear the words. You never want to have the words, I've had people killed, come out of your mouth. <laughs> Keith, what are you up to? Family members of Gina, Kristen, Barbara, and Pamela each believe that an investigation into the mysterious deaths of their loved one should be reopened with a bright spotlight pointed directly at Keith. As the time of this writing, no new investigations have been launched. The women's friends and relatives are still seeking justice. Keep on seeking. Keep on seeking. Because there's a lot of smoke there, isn't there? Um, this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. <sighs> Wild ride. Um, thanks for being here. If you enjoy this show, please do leave it a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or if you're watching on YouTube, hi. Um, like, subscribe. I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.